Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. This is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with an old friend and colleague, Chuck Neal. Chuck is an ecologist who spent 40 years with the Departments of Agriculture and Interior with a special focus on wilderness and habitat in the Rockies, from New Mexico to Montana. Chuck has a passion for grizzly bears and spent countless hours in Yellowstone's backcountry, and he's written a fascinating book, Grizzlies in the Mist. Chuck, maybe you could share a bit what drew you to grizzly bears. I would say as briefly as possible that grizzly bear has always seemed to be the uh, symbol of wild America. I've often said the wolf may be the voice of wild America, but the grizzly bear is the symbol, the spirit of wild America, a highly iconic species. And, and looking at it through the lens of an ecologist, it became apparent early on that he is what we call an umbrella species. And if we can protect suitable habitat for a bear to have a self-sustaining population, we can also protect the habitat needed for a, the great host of other species that occupy our western wildlands. So he became a uh, symbolic uh, inspiration to me as well as an and a more pragmatic ecological uh, barometer by which to measure the health of, of our western wildlands. Chuck, the federal government has recently announced a proposal that would remove federal protections from Yellowstone grizzly bears, perhaps later in 2016. Do you think grizzly bears are ready for this? And what do you think might happen after delisting? Well, I do not support this history listing proposal. It's, it's another one of these recurring uh, proposals by the federal grizzly bear recovery folks, uh, apparently designed to uh, appease the political power structure in the, in the three interior Rocky Mountain states where we do have bears. Uh, it, it will, as far as I'm concerned, from my perspective, it will stop the recovery of grizzly bears in its tracks. By that, I don't mean to say it's going to mean the elimination of the bear population. They will, they will continue to be a grizzly bear population in the Yellowstone ecosystem, that is, the area directly around the park itself, uh, for an indeterminate amount of time. But they are not going to be a, what we call a recovered population. They're going to be a more appropriately termed a relic population, an open-air zoo population, as it were, because recovery itself, which were requires an expanding population into previously occupied habitat by bears, historically occupied, will no longer be taking place. The plan itself calls for basically uh, disregarding bears outside of this uh, circle that, that the uh, feds consider a demographic monitoring area, and those bears will be considered expendable and no doubt will be uh, removed either through legal hunting or in typical control action. So, no, I don't think the bear population is ready 
to be listed as recovered. They are recovering. They are not recovered. Chuck, as you emphasize in your book, uh, United States Forest Service lands outside Yellowstone and Grand Teton parks are especially important to recovery. Why do you think that's so, and what are your concerns about what happens to these lands after delisting? Well, the future of the grizzly, as I've written, uh, actually lies with the Forest Service on national forest lands, the public lands belonging to all Americans, because the parks we have, whether it's Yellowstone or Grand Teton, within this particular ecosystem are simply not large enough to maintain a a fully viable, self-sustaining bear population. So it is essential that the Forest Service steps up and does its part in permitting bears to occupy all biologically suitable habitat on lands under their stewardship. And there are plenty of them out there. There are hundreds of thousands of acres of national forest land that are suitable for bear occupation today. However, there is, uh, there is a conflicting claim over who really controls those lands, uh, and that conflict primarily, not exclusively, but primarily comes from the livestock industry, who have grazed these lands for probably a century or more, and they still see those lands as belonging rightfully to them. From my perspective, it's simply a question, is society going to let that status stand? Are we going to allow our public lands be used primarily for private livestock, taking precedence over public wildlife, or are we going to turn that around and say public lands must have a priority use for public wildlife rather than private livestock? And if we take that, uh, that parameter as how we're going to measure our use of our public lands, i.e. national forest lands, the, the future would be relatively bright for the grizzly bear because he could then be permitted to occupy, historically uh, occupied, grizzly bear habitat, which includes hundreds of thousands of acres of national forest land. So I, I see that as the real key. The, the forest lands are the real key to a fully recovered grizzly bear population. You've talked about the importance of connecting Yellowstone grizzly bears to other populations. Can you go into that in more detail? What does connectivity look like? Well, if you come, go back to my definition of a recovered population, it's, it's a population of bears uh, large enough to withstand the genetic, demographic, environmental, and catastrophic uncertainties uh, and maintaining a self-sustaining population over several centuries. Now, that kind of population is, is going to be larger than anything we have within what we now call the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. It's going to uh, require more land than what we have in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And that, of course, uh, leads to the obvious uh, conclusion that we need linkage zones that would connect the Yellowstone populations to other subpopulations to, in turn, create one large, what I refer to uh, in ecological jargon, as a meta-population of bears scattered throughout the U.S. northern Rockies. This potential is still there. We, we have uh, a vast area in central Idaho, which, uh, uh, the central Idaho wildlands, generally referred to as the salmon dash selway dash bitterroot uh, wildlands area that is presently unoccupied by any sustaining bear population 
it's possible one or two bears have wandered in there, but it's not a, there is not a sustainable grizzly population. They've been killed off. Historically, there was a, quite a robust bear population. Now, there, there, has, there was a plan developed perhaps 20 years ago, back during the Clinton administration, to start uh, translocating sub-adult bears into the central Idaho wildlands, this salmon salway bitter root I'm referring to, five bears at a, a year for about five years, for a total of about 25 bears, with the, with the hope and belief that that population would then grow, and the habitat being as good as it is, it would certainly be able to probably carry 200-plus bears. If this plan had been carried out, or if it were to be carried out today, the potential would be there, a very strong and good potential, that we could have connection, connectivity between that population and the greater Yellowstone population, which is trying to expand westward even as we speak. Having, we now have bears in the Centennial Range and the Gravelly Range and the Snowcrest Range of southwest Montana. If we just take some precautionary uh, moves on the part, again, of public land agencies, and in the case of southwest Montana, it would involve not only the U.S. Forest Service lands, it would also involve uh, U.S. Bureau of Land Management lands, which are in, they are in abundance in southwest Montana, some precautionary regulations to permit safe passage, so to speak, if I can use that term, for uh, bears that attempt to link uh, their population between the central Idaho country and the greater Yellowstone countries. That's what I'm talking about when I refer to connectivity. But in a nutshell, uh, if we do not have that kind of connectivity, and if we do not have this expanded occupation of suitable habitat, we will never have a recovered grizzly bear population. Never. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to over-dramatize that word, but anything that's currently being proposed that is less than that, i.e. keeping bears in a snug little area around the park, will never achieve recovery. Chuck, what do you think might be the impacts of a grizzly bear hunt on the prospects for connectivity? A, a hunt, a hunt, Louisa, would be about the worst possible suggestion they could come up with. We can be sure the hunt will be directed at bears outside of this magic line around Yellowstone Park. The DMA is what they're referring to as. The hunt would be specifically selected toward those individual bears outside of that line. And that, those are exactly the bears that are trying to recolonize historical habitat. These, these bears, out, let me put it another way, the, the grizzly bears outside of this DMA are actually the most important bears in the Yellowstone ecosystem today. I'll, I'll restate that. They are the most important grizzly bears in the Yellowstone ecosystem because they are the ones trying to recolonize historic bear habitat and they will be precisely the bears that will be eliminated by selective hunting. So hunting on top of what already takes place every year in terms of grizzly bear mortality would be the worst possible suggestion they could come up with. In practical terms, we already have a grizzly bear hunt every year, and it's called elk season when uh, scores of bears are killed. I think this past year is 40 or 50 during the hunting season. So not only will that be uh, a, a additional mortality on top of the mortality that takes place during elk season and control actions by so-called wildlife services, 
it will be taking out the most important bears in the ecosystem, those colonizers. Chuck, you alluded to changes needed in the public process involved in decision-making related to public lands, making public lands agencies answer to a broader public, not a well-heeled few. How would you suggest doing that? I th- that's an excellent point. And as I mentioned earlier, recovery of grizzly bears will not take place until we get the public involved in management of the public lands. Historically, I'm going to say historically, I'm talking about for the last century or so, the livestock industry has controlled the agenda on public lands. And in the middle of the last century, we began to get laws that directed agencies toward multiple use uh, on both forests and BLM lands, which gradually uh, tended to shift some uh, of the direction of management of these agencies toward more a more comprehensive vision of what the public lands really stood for. I say a gradual shift in that direction, but always the understanding at the top was the livestock are supreme. That they will always take the final call when the come, push comes to shove. So while there has been some movement, it's just more or less at a snail's pace. So the public has to understand that these are their lands. And by that, I mean public all across the country, which at present I don't believe they do. If they understand these are their lands, and do they want these public lands be managed primarily for private livestock, or do you want these public lands managed primarily for public wildlife? That is, the, that is going to be the critical call as to the real future of the grizzly, and for that matter, uh, other wide-ranging carnivores as well in the decades to come. If Under this current proposal for delistening the grizzly, the agencies are still satisfied, or they are indicating by this proposal, they're still satisfied that the status quo, that is, the final arbiter of what the proper use of public lands is and will remain the livestock use of these lands, private livestock over public wildlife. And my point, and what I was trying to say earlier, if that view holds, we will never achieve recovery of species such as the Yellowstone grizzly bear. We'll only be, we'll be forced into a managing for a relic population restricted to the immediate environs of the park, but we will never have a recovery as I defined earlier. So, so we must get the, the public must be made aware of what they own and, and what they have at stake. And uh, how they do that, I don't know any other means other than education, and, and uh, perhaps that's precisely what you're trying to do with your program. Chuck, you've lived around the Yellowstone ecosystem for decades now. Have you seen changes in that time in public attitudes about public lands and species like the grizzly bear? That's not an easy one to answer. I would say <laughs> I can't give you a yes or no. I can give you a yes and no. And by that, by that ambivalence, I mean, generally speaking, there is a uh, there is a sense of uh, some degree of pride. Uh, among uh, locals that we have grizzlies, uh, it's a sense of pride, but it's not. It's not a. It doesn't seem to be a sense that dictates their actions. <laughs> by that, by that I mean they still 
have a sense of uh, resentment toward the bear uh, taking precedence on some decisions over what is crucial habitat for him, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they, while they like to boast about the bear, well, we, we have grizzlies here and other areas don't, they kind of uh, consider that a sense of pride. They, at the same time, they don't see the conflict in their view that uh, we need to manage, quote, unquote, these bears back to where they have a fear of man. And that kind of attitude tells me their pride is not very deep. They don't want to show the tolerance that is going to be required to bring this bear back to his rightful place in our Western heritage. They, they're not ready to show that degree of tolerance. They're, they seem to be quite willing to accept the relic population. And in that sense, I would say locally, well, there will be more support for this current proposed delisting than not, because they see that as uh, keeping the bear in his place, quote, unquote. Uh, that's a kind of ambivalent answer, but I think that's the best I can do for you. Chuck, along those lines, do you think you would be seeing as much tolerance as you are with grizzly bears were it not for the protections afforded by the Endangered Species Act since 1975? If it were not for the ESA, uh, Louisa, I think the bears would be just struggling to survive in Yellowstone Park today. It, that. That's uh, the long and the short of it. They simply would not be where they are today. The ESA forced the states and forced us as a people to show a degree of tolerance for a, a large omnivore who on occasion can be dangerous. Most of the time is not. We've, we've been forced to show that tolerance, and in the, in the process, have developed this kind of twisted form of pride, as I said. But if it had not been for that protection under the ESA, the bear was living today as a small population, a relic population within Yellowstone Park proper, and that would be it. Back to a point you mentioned earlier, which is the role of the hunt and fear of man. You often hear that we need to hunt bears to instill in grizzly bears a fear of man. What do you think about that, and what, if any, scientific justification is there? There is no scientific justification for for that view whatsoever. Uh, how does a dead bear teach fear to his peers? It doesn't happen. The bear is dead. Now, I, if you are, are you planning, are the states planning to wound a mother bear here and there? And to, for the mother then to teach the cubs the fear of man? I mean, I'd like to know how they're going to do that. It's not a feasible proposal. Now, there is uh, at least one way that might work. That one way would be if you intend to shoot the population down to where it's only, a, say, 10% left, you kill 90% of all the bears you have out there now, kill 90%, you have 10% left. Well, are you killing that many bears? You may well teach the remaining 10% fear. That may work. But who wants to do that? I mean, are you, who's going to propose killing the bears down to about 10% of the current numbers? So the idea that you're going to teach bears fear by hunting them has no scientific justification and is preposterous for anyone to seriously propose. Chuck, you've often talked about dramatic changes in native foods for the grizzly bear, particularly whitebark pine and the Yellowstone cutthroat trout. 
Can you talk a bit more about the changes you've seen and about what they mean to bears and recovery? There has been a, a shifting away from those foods that you just mentioned because they've been in such a dramatic decline, both white bark and cutthroat. But uh, a number of the bears are not in the uh, uh, Yellowstone Lake uh, area proper, so they've been uh, looking for other foods regardless. Uh, here on the eastern side of the ecosystem, uh, white bark has been a major part. The nuts have been a major part of their diet, and now that's no longer true. Now, Often uh, in this context, the uh, proposing agencies uh, are saying how adaptable the bears are, and they will shift to other foods. And I am seeing myself more and more uh, of the fruits, the berry crops that we do have, being consumed by grizzly bears each fall. So it's becoming more and more important for various uh, berry crops like chokecherries and huckleberries uh, to these bears on the east side as they've lost their white bark pine nuts. So that's been that distinct shift, and as well as toward uh, spending more time actively seeking uh, meat in the fall, which sometimes does cause uh, trouble both for the bears and for people. But where I have the biggest conflict with that that philosophy being uh, pushed by the agencies when they say bears are very adaptable and they can go to other foods, it's not that I question that bears are very adaptable. They are very adaptable and they're very intelligent. But they simply have to have the room to forage for these other often less nutritious foods. And the way they have uh, the room to do that is by us showing the tolerance and letting them expand into all suitable habitats. You see, I'm coming right back to where I was a few minutes ago in our conversation. The bears must be permitted to expand in all suitable habitat. Chuck, one aspect of the delisting issue you haven't discussed yet is the role of the states. The states, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, will assume authority from the federal government over managing grizzly bears after delisting. How well do you think the states will do with that responsibility? Well, the states have made it clear where they stand. Uh, They're not being uh, enigmatic about it. They intend to keep the bears back within a restricted zone around the park, the so-called Demographic Monitoring Area, or DMA. Uh, they, they intend to regard bears outside as somewhat surplus. They've maintained that they, there is no suitable habitat uh, in other ranges, like the Wyoming Range, the uh, Southern Wind Rivers, uh, Salt River Range, et cetera, et cetera. Which there, and there, there is actually plenty of habitat there, but it is being claimed by the livestock industry. So my view is a uh, top-level uh, opportunistic omnivorous carnivores, such as the grizzly bear, is simply too important a species to permit uh, provincial views to take uh, control over their management. And that's exactly what happened within the states. The state politicians are much more captives of these special interest groups. Again, uh, the example being livestock industry. They will certainly push their agenda much more robustly than the federal uh, oversight would permit. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of letting the states take management control over species such as the grizzly bear. Shifting gears, 
In your book, Grizzlies in the Mist, you share a number of stories of your personal close encounters with grizzly bears. Uh, do you have uh, one experience or two that are particularly vivid in your mind that you'd like to share? <laughs> uh, I often am asked that question. Uh, I continue to have experiences since the book was written, but it's hard to say uh, any one that is, is every experience with a grizzly is vivid. It's, everyone adds to your lifespan instead of detracting from it. Uh, I, I hesitate. There, there are some that tend to stick out. I've had multiple charges by bears after I thought the charge thing was over. They come roaring back. It stands out, I guess. Uh, another time when I was surrounded by nine or ten grizzlies all within 100 yards, I mean, what, they were eating white bark pine nuts while I'm sitting there in the middle of them. Uh, some of those tend to be a little more uh, strongly as my mind, but every one uh, is a special experience that, as I said, uh, it simply adds to your allotted time on this earth rather than detract you from it. So, so I, I probably can't do much better than that. <laughs> That's why I say one is really more important than the other. Right. What do you think some of those charges were about? Oh, the charges were about me blundering into their private space. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't any uh, really act of aggression uh, on their part. It wasn't a, that is, a bear seeking out to hurt me. It was me blundering into their private area. And, and the, you must understand, the grizzly bear is a very dignified bear. He really is. That sounds like an anthropomorphic-type term, but it's no other way for us to describe it since we are human. But the bear is much more dignified than the black bear, and he, he wants to be left alone and live in peace and quiet. And we continually stumble into his hallowed presence. So when, he does, when I do that, he, when I have done it, he, he or she often will respond with a charge. Now, I'm, I suppose we could dwell briefly on what is a charge, because many people say, uh, uh, the bear is going to do this, do a bluff charge, or has done a bluff charge. And my belief is that the charge itself is dictated is dictated by what you do, not what the bear does. If you act foolish, if you run, scream, shout, or uh, uh, do something else uh, uh, foolishly, that charge will probably actually uh, come or result in a contact with the bear and person, and the bear will take the person down and actually give them a good spanking in all likelihood. If your person acts uh, soberly, responsibly, respectfully, and simply talk to the bear, uh, again, in my experience, and I've had more than 15 of these close-type charges uh, over the years, the bear will never touch you in all likelihood. And I've had bears come within six feet of me on either side of me, in front of me, slide to a stop, so close they throw, throw sticks and stones up my face, and I just continue talking. And it's, I've never had a claw or tooth mark on me, but I apologized to the bear while I was going through this process, and the bear let me off, sometimes with a second and a third charge, but still let me off. But if a person acts foolishly, this charge is going to result in contact in all likelihood and will result in injury. And, and the bears are so enormously powerful that even a slight spanking on their part will result in serious injury on the human's part. So that's where people get hurt very badly. 
So it, it's a, the charge, the, a bluff charge is kind of a misleading term because bears don't say, hmm, I think I'll I think I'll charge this character and see what he does. That's not what they do. They, they charge instinctively trying to tell you to back off, stay out of my space, and then it's up to you to do the right thing. Chuck, this gets to the importance of being prepared for a close encounter with a grizzly bear in the backcountry. And maybe you can touch now on bear pepper spray. Yes, I, I do recommend uh, pepper spray. Uh, I, I, for many years, I've never carried pepper spray at all. I, it's not that I don't think it's not effective. It is very effective. It's much more effective in carrying a handgun for sure. But uh, I just started carrying it in just a few recent years, just the uh, last four or five years. Now, the reason I did that was for political reasons rather than uh, biological reasons. Uh, and I, I have to give you digress here just slightly if you'll allow me that luxury. Uh, I had a good friend that was uh, uh, killed by a bear uh, in 2010. Uh, he, he never carried bear spray anymore, and I did. He was not killed because of the bear's aggressiveness at all. He was killed by a sloppy botched trapping operation by USGS, which left a drug bear laying in an unmarked trap site, and my friend stumbled into that. So since that time, <clears throat> I've carried spray, as I say, for a political reason, and the political reason is this. Uh, a lot of folks around here know me. Uh, I, I, I don't want to sound uh, immodest, but a lot of folks around here know know about me. And I decided, what if I don't I continue not carrying spray, and I were to get seriously injured in a bear confrontation somewhere out there someday, and it would be pointed out, uh, old man, old man Chuck Neal wasn't carrying any spray. You see where I got him. Uh, so I'll show you how dangerous these bears are. We need to start killing them back. So I decided maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe in a political sense, I should carry spray, hoping that I won't be the cause of a more aggressive uh, 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 management process against the bears someday in the future based on what could have happened to me. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying on that convoluted type of reasoning? So the last several years I have started carrying bear spray, and I do recommend uh, folks to carry it. It is effective. It has been proven effective. Yeah. Finally, do you, do you have hope that uh, grizzly bears may someday be recovered? <laughs> uh, I don't think I'm going to see it in my lifetime, uh, Louise. I'm in my 80s now, and uh, once I had such delusions, but uh, I, really th- I really think – Recovery, as I define it, or I would be, I would be satisfied if he were, got, were to get serious about recovery, and not even achieving it, but just being serious. And by serious, I mean uh, taking real steps, uh, meaningful steps, about expanding bear habitat and letting and laying out the welcome mat, and getting more bears in, say, in central Idaho, and securing linkage zones. If the agencies would come up with things proactively like that. I would feel a sense of uh, some confidence that recovery is going to take place. But uh, and given the current uh, political atmosphere, uh, I think we're going to continue to stumble along maintaining relic populations of grizzlies for well, the remainder of my life, which, of course, won't be very long. But it, it, I don't see it happening in my lifetime. Maybe another generation, maybe. 
Chuck, thank you very much. This is Louisa Wilcox with The Grizzly Beat, and we're talking today with ecologist, author, and grizzly bear expert Chuck Neal.